Welcome to Hack to Start, a podcast focused on interesting people and the innovative ways they achieve success. I'm Franco Variano. And I'm Tyler Copeland. Each week we speak with a new guest about how they created, hacked, and hustled their way to the top and distill their insights and experiences for you. The path to success isn't always linear. Hack, start, and repeat. This episode is brought to you by Breather. Find beautiful, practical spaces that you can reserve on the go. Ghost, a simple, powerful publishing platform that allows you to share your story with the world. And SoundCloud. Hear the world sounds. This episode features Dan Shipper, the co-founder of Firefly, a co-browsing solution for businesses. Hey, Dan, thanks for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. So let's start things off by getting to know where you're from, what did you study, and how did your passion for entrepreneurship develop? Okay. Um, so where am I from? So I grew up in Princeton, New Jersey. Um, I went to school at uh, Penn in Philadelphia, and I am now currently living in New York City. Um, at school, I studied philosophy. And how did my passion for entrepreneurship develop? Um, it was early. Um, it was just the kind of thing where I uh, I read a Bill Gates biography when I was in fifth grade, um, and I decided that I wanted to start a Microsoft competitor. Nice. Um, and I was going to name it Megasoft. <laughs> <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> So I, I you know, decided that I wanted to learn how to code so I could build a, a, uh, an operating system that would compete with Windows. So I dragged my dad to the bookstore and uh, I had him buy me a book on BASIC. And I quickly um, realized that I wasn't going to be able to uh, compete with Microsoft or build an operating system. Um, but it was just something that I, like building things and building products was just something that I kept coming back to. So it grew over a long period of time, starting from when I was in middle school. So you said you started off with BASIC for the first programming language that you learned. What happened afterwards? Where did, did you learn Ruby? Did you learn Node? Like, where where are you today with uh, coding? Uh, what, what happened afterwards? Well, there was a lot of years in between. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I, you know, I'm trying to remember. I mean, like the. The only the, I did a lot of projects in middle school, not, none of which like really like turned into anything real. Um, I worked in Basic, I worked in Python, I worked in um, uh, C a little bit, um, and Java. Um, the first like apps that I built that anyone ever bought uh, were mobile apps. So I started working on uh, mobile apps in high school, and the first apps that I, I built were for BlackBerry because it was uh, it was before the iPhone had even come out. Um, mm-hmm. and no one, no, one, no one even knew what an app was, so I, I told people I was building BlackBerry software. Um, and so th- then the first app that I built for BlackBerry was uh, basically, it was kind of like Find My iPhone. So I kept losing my BlackBerry in my house, and it was on silent, so I couldn't call it to make it ring. Mm-hmm. And so I built this little program that listened for incoming email messages, and if an email had a specific little string in the subject line, it would make your phone ring even if it was on silent. Um, and I called it Find It, and I that was the first app that I released that anyone ever bought, and it was like it was an amazing feeling. Uh, just I put up a landing page, um, I hooked it up to this thing called eJunkie, which is kind of like Stripe, but like 
back in the day, that was what, what you would use to accept payments. And uh, I remember sort of being in, uh, going to the library uh, during lunch the day after I released it and having like 40 emails from people uh, wanting to try it out. And it was just like, it was like the coolest experience ever. That's really um, cool, yeah. Yeah. So and, how many people ended up using, using the product? I mean, so I, so I, I, from, from that beginning, I iterated it over like a couple of years into sort of this, like a much more fully featured product, uh, that was, it had a, you know, a web interface, you could back up your phone, you could lock it, uh, you could make it call you, uh, you could track it on a map. And this was all before Find My iPhone came out. Um, and I mean, I don't, honestly, I don't remember like specific user numbers, but it was enough. I made enough money from it to pay for gas and food in high school. Um, and, uh, my, my one, re my one regret is that it was a, it was a one-time payment thing, even though it was, it's a really good, uh, piece of software to have as a SaaS app. Mm -hmm. It was a one-time payment app. And the reason is because it was so difficult to set up recurring payments with PayPal that I couldn't figure out how to do it. <laughs> um, so I think I definitely would have made a lot more uh, head striping around when I was in high school. Did BlackBerry even have an app store back then? I thought they were Did pretty Black late to that game. Yeah, yeah. When I was doing it, most of the time when I was doing it, there was there was no app store. It was just um, you, basically you could uh, install uh, you, the software. You, you, yeah, you download it from me. Um, and there were they had these things called OTA over the air links, yeah, and like yeah. you clicked it, your your BlackBerry would download it from from my server. That's awesome. So, so what was your first uh, company, and can you take us through how you created it? Um, I mean, I guess it depends on what your definition of a company is. Um, so, you know, the stuff I was working on in high school, I guess you could say, was my first company because I was I was selling products. I was incorporated, um, and uh, it was called Convenience Software. And basically, uh, I just built you know the app that I told you about, Find It. Yeah. And I had a couple of other ones. One was called Pearlcast, which was I don't know if you remember. Blackberry Pearls. Uh, they used to have the the little roller ball to help you navigate yes. around. I hate yeah, that yeah. Ball. yeah. <laughs> Jesus. And so on on my Blackberry Pearl on on some models of the Blackberry Pearl, uh, the roller ball actually had colored LEDs behind it, um, and that was a very like unknown and unused feature of the Blackberry. And so what Pearlcast did was it basically it was like one of those weather orbs where it would uh, get weather data for your local area. And then it would light your uh, your orb up with the current temperature. That's pretty uh, cool. For the current forecast, yeah. yeah. So people seem to like that. And I had a couple other ones. Like I had, I built like a little task manager, and then I also branched out into iPhone once that came out. Um, so it was, uh, yeah, I, I I did a lot of that stuff in high school. It was cool. So it was all mobile and, and stuff like that. Is where you focused? Yeah, I didn't. I mean, obviously, all the stuff that I was doing had like a web component. Yeah. Um, and. Uh, but I didn't really start doing uh, like web-only apps until college. So speaking of that, in, in 2012, you and uh, Justin Meltzer, if I'm pronouncing his last name properly, I hope so, um, co-founded Firefly. Um, so what is Firefly and, and why did you start that? So, uh, good question. So Firefly. So Firefly, at Firefly we, we built a technology called co-browsing. Uh, and co-browsing is kind of like uh, screen sharing, but it happens inside of a browser. Um, so what we do is, and we apply it mostly to customer support, so if a customer is having a problem with a website, we allow an agent to sort of connect up to their browser, see what they're doing and help them through the site. But it's different because it never requires a download or an installation, so it always runs instantly in the browser. It's a lot more private, so the agent is only going to see what's on the customer's web page. They don't see other open browser tabs. 
they don't see other open applications on the computer. Uh, and it's uh, totally platform agnostic, so it's going to work on Mac, PC, iPhone, iPad, or Android. Um, so, so that's what Firefly is. Um, we started it in 2012. So my dad called me one day, and he he, he was saying that it's, it was very difficult to explain to someone uh, where to go on the website on on a website when you're on the phone with them. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so I told that to my co-founder Justin, who went and built the first version at. Uh, of Firefly at the Pen Apps Hackathon, which is a 48-hour hackathon at Pen, um, and so and when he built the first version at Pen Apps, he like a couple companies came up to him and were like, "Hey, like we want to use this for our support process. This would be really really valuable for us." And so that sort of gave us a little bit of an idea of, of how valuable it might be. Um, and that was in January of 2012. We started working on it like really full time in uh, around June or July of 2012 um, and uh, so built the company mo mostly from school we bootstrapped uh, we raised 20k from the dorm room fund which is a fund that specifically uh, invests in student-run startups mm -hmm. um, we bootstrapped it to a, a little bit over half a million dollars a year in revenue um, and then sold it to Pega in uh, July of this year yeah, that's really cool. So, how did you manage to actually just grow this thing to six figures in recurring revenue? Um, you know, what started off as a as a hackathon project. Um, that's a good question. So, I mean, a lot of what we did was, uh, I mean, we concentrated on building a, a, a product that worked really well, uh, which is with this technology is really is actually really hard. Mm -hmm. um, it's very very difficult to uh, build a co-browsing technology that's JavaScript based that works in all browsers. So, we worked back to IE eight. And works in any on any kind of website. So the biggest challenge is obviously when you have lots of complicated DOM interactions, um, and you're doing like AJAX calls and all that stuff. Like, how do you make sure that the agent is synced up yeah. uh, with the customer? So that's that part is really hard. Uh, and then the second thing that we that we did is we concentrated on sales. Um, and so we were we basically sold the product from the beginning. Uh, we found a couple of big customers that that wanted it. And uh, when you're doing like hundred thousand dollar deals. Um, you know, half a million dollars in recurring revenue is not, you know, not too far away. It's not too uh, far away, but but I'll stop you there. So, how did you find those those first major guys, and how like how because you typically they have a super long sales cycle. How did you manage to get your product in front of them, and then you know get them to to pick up the software? Yeah, so they do have a super long sales cycle, and you know we 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 ran the company for about two and a half years, so we were we were able to uh, stick with it long enough to see those deals close. Okay. Um, it took us about eleven months to close our first deal, um, and so it was it was a really really long and arduous process to get that first one to close. Um, and the the other ones were each successive one is slightly easier, but it's still not mm -hmm. easy. It still takes a long time. Um, was it just we, was it just emailing them or kind of approaching them and saying that you had a new solution or how how did you get your foot in the door? Yeah, so the way we started is basically we sort of came up with some hypotheses about uh, what kind of companies would want this. So. Mm -hmm. One of the hypotheses was anybody that's using a live chat technology, um, like I don't know if you've ever seen Olark or Snap Engage or yeah. Zopim or any one of those, anybody who's using that is probably likely to be interested in co-browsing um, because they already understand you know, having some, some sort of little support widget on their website. And so it's not a stretch to, if they're already chatting with them, for them to want to be able to see what the person is doing on their site. Um, and so what we did is we bought a list of companies that use those products and the, the, and the reason you can do that is there's this, uh, there's this company called Built With that basically scans yep. like lots of websites 
and they'll tell you what technologies they use. So we just use BuiltWith to figure out who is using SnappyGage and Olark and that and that and you know those kinds of products. And then we just started emailing them, um, and, and uh, that was a super uh, interesting process. We learned a lot from it um, about what kind of companies like it, and what kind of companies didn't like it. Um, and so you know, so we started there. Uh, after a while of going after the customers of these companies, um, one thing that sort of we, we were thinking about is, you know, instead of signing up, uh, you know, small businesses one by one, why not just go to Olark or go to SnappyGage and say, hey, we, we'll power the co-browsing for all of your customers and, and have Olark be our customer instead of having Olark's customers be our mm-hmm. customers. Yeah. Um, and so that actually ended up being the first deal that we did. So, wow, that's uh, huge. Yeah, the first big deal we did. So, you know, Olark, they have about 5,000, over 5,000 small and medium-sized businesses on their platform. And uh, so, you know, we did a deal with them and we're, you know, we're rolled out to all of them. Uh, so any one of Olark's customers can use our technology um, through through Olark and they don't have to sign up with us. They don't have to do anything. Um, so that, that was a really, really good first deal for us to do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, why, did, why did you structure that as a partnership? Like, why didn't they just look at the technology and say, we want to buy you guys? Um, I mean, Olark is, uh, they're like a 25 to 30 person company. Um, so, I mean, they may have considered it. Uh, they're also bootstrapped. Okay. So, um, you know, it, it made, it made more sense for both of us for it to be a partnership rather than an acquisition, particularly because we were very early at the time. You know, we, we don't, we'd only been working on it for like nine months or so. So, mm-hmm. you know, a, an acquisition probably wouldn't have been super appealing to us at that point. Cool. So you mentioned earlier that you know it took you about eleven months to close your your first deal, um, but during that time you guys had generated about eleven thousand dollars in revenue, I yeah. guess from smaller customers or smaller yeah. tests. Um, but you you mentioned that you can only really know what your product is after you start to sell it. So I mean, do you think more startups should go out and start selling a product from day one, or what are your views on that? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think like the fear is, well, if we sell the product and like it doesn't work, then like you can't, you know. Uh, you don't get a second chance at a first impression. Um, mm-hmm. I think that that's just sort of taking yourself way too seriously, unless you're like Microsoft uh, or Apple or whatever. Uh, the likelihood of you being able to get anybody to pay attention to you is so low that it's much, much, it's much more worth it to just get your stuff out there and uh, start getting feedback right away. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, for us, it, wor- it worked really well to sell as early as possible. And I would encourage any founder that's, uh, especially particularly founders that haven't done anything before uh, to start selling as early and as often as possible. Yeah. And you mentioned that, I mean, right after the first 48 hours where the, the core product was conceived, that you guys had other teams approaching you to use it. Um, but were there any other kind of major uh, revelations during those during those 11 months where you guys were starting to sell, but you hadn't quite cracked a big deal? Or was it all just, you know, business improvements in terms of who's our target market? How do we approach them? I mean, so for us, um, I mean, thinking about like the the sort of API model where we had a co-browsing API, kind of like Twilio, that anybody could integrate. Um, that was that was somewhat of a, of a revelation when we were like thinking through, like, how do we want to sell this? Do we want to sell this to small businesses? Do we want to sell this to companies like Olark that are going to integrate it into their products? That kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and that came, you know, that came in like the summer, and we, you know, we started working on it in January. Um, but you know, a lot of it was uh, we always had deals in the pipeline. It was just. You know, when is one of these deals going to close? Mm-hmm. Uh, just taking like a long, 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 long time, uh, and it was just very hard. 
it's very hard when you like I can say eleven months and you're like, oh, eleven months, like that's not that bad. But like when you wait when you're waking up every day. Yeah, when you're waiting for that sale. Yeah. <laughs> seven days a week and you're like, you know, we're not making that much money, like you're making like two thousand dollars a month or whatever, and like I'm pouring all my time into this. Like it's really it's a real drag. I'm I've been trying to think of like a a metaphor for people to like to really understand emotionally how that feels. Because um, I think there's, I think there's something out there, but I haven't found one that's like really appropriate to like the level of pain involved in like tr- sticking with something for 11 months that yeah. uh, is not working, or or there's no outward signs that it's working. I was about to ask you, so how did you decide to stick with it for 11 months? Because unless you've gone through that process of you know looking at a, a great pipeline and waiting for a deal to close, you don't really know what it feels like. So how did you um, stick with it? I mean, probably partly like pigheadedness and like ignorance, <laughs> um, but uh, you know, also, I mean, there was there were always like signs that this was just a real thing. Like, there's there are other companies out there that do co-browsing, just not in the way that we were doing it. So we knew that there was a market, yeah. Um, and we always had customers that were interested in it. It was just like, when are we going to get someone to actually just sign on the dotted line and give us money? I mean, and and obviously, like. Um, we, we had people paying for the software, you know, we were, we had like, I don't know, like 20 or 30, like small companies paying for it or whatever, but it was, when are we going to get the first big company to say, uh, yes, we'll do like a significant amount of, we'll, we'll, we'll pay you a significant amount of money every month for us to be able to use, to use this. Yeah, absolutely. And then, so you mentioned at the beginning that Firefly was just this past year, uh, acquired by Pega Systems. So why did you decide to sell it and, and how did the acquisition come about? Yeah. So, um, I think you know, looking at Pega, um, their customer base is exactly the kinds of customers that uh, like what we have, um, and so uh, Pega sells to the top 200 organizations in the world, essentially, and they uh, mostly concentrate on financial services and healthcare, um, healthcare insurance, which are the people that really like what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, so it made sense from that perspective. Um, for us, we weren't like looking to sell the company, um, but. Uh, there was, you know, the demand for co-browsing, especially among large organizations, is increasing uh, over the last like year or two. And Pega is uh, has a large a large part of their business is in customer experience. They have a big CRM product that a lot of big, big companies use, um, and so it made sense for them to have co-browsing as part of their uh, platform to be able to sell it. Um, and you know, for us, uh, you know, we liked the offer, and it, it made sense to uh, to go with Pega. Cool. So what are you working on right now? So uh, basically, we're, we're continuing to build out the product. Um, okay. So we're selling it as an independent product. We're also selling it integrated into Pega's uh, CRM product called CPM. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, so we're, we're, it's already integrated. Uh, it's being sold as part of Pega right now, um, which is going really, it's going fantastically well. Um, and uh, so we're, we're continuing to improve the product, and we're going to be building out other products and other features around the co-browsing over, the, over time. That's pretty cool. That's awesome. So, so during high school and university, you built several different apps, um, which allowed various companies to approach you to work for them, including a famous blog post by Jason Freeman um, of 42 floors. So why did you decide to stay in school? Um, that's a great question. It, like, definitely, this is something that like, I agonized over for like, a long time, um, you know, whether, whether to drop out or whether to stay. Um, and I think for me, like, what it came down to is a couple of things. The first thing is that uh, I was in school because I liked it, not because I was there to get a degree so I could get a job. Uh, I realized like very early on that like I didn't necessarily have to have a degree in order to get a job, particularly if I was going to be starting my own company or uh, I wanted to program. Um, no one really, no one typically cares. Um, however, 
I was, uh, you know, I was studying philosophy, um, which personally I felt was important. Um, and there's like very few, you get very few opportunities to spend all of your time or not all of your time, but like a good portion of your day thinking about, uh, philosophy. <laughs> um, and so, uh, from that perspective, like I wanted to stay, all things being equal. And I sort of looked at it as, you know, when we were starting this, if it came to a point where I literally uh, physically could not do both starting Firefly and running Firefly and being in school, then I would make a decision about it. But until I got to that point, I was going to continue to do both. And we just never got to that point where I, I just couldn't do it anymore. Um, so, it, it, and it worked out really well for me. So basically, I flew from my graduation ceremony to Boston to finish negotiating the deal uh, to sell the company. So it was, uh, it was oh, a really that's amazing feeling. wild, awesome ride. Yeah. If anyone listening hasn't already checked it out, your blog Distilled Thinking it has attracted more than half a million readers and some of the posts have been featured all over the internet. Why did you start blogging and how did you grow your audience? Um, so I think like that's a similar question to like why, like, why you know, do you start businesses and the the answer that I, the only answer I can really give is like I can't help myself. It's just like writing is always something that has I've been interested in that I like to do and that I do uh, in my spare time, just sort of spontaneously, um, writing code or writing blog posts. Um, and so, particularly when I was you know when I was a freshman and I was we built a couple apps that uh, one went viral and then we interviewed a Y Combinator and we did a lot of like interesting things. Um, as we started to do that stuff, I just started to write about it and um, people were actually interested in reading it so I continued um, so you know I think that's that's sort of why I do it um, I mean it has a lot of really really good side effects um, if you if you're constantly writing about what you're doing it's a lot easier to um, get press it's a lot easier to get investors to, to talk to you and it's uh, it's also depending on what you're selling it's a lot easier to get customers so um, for me, blogging has always been sort of like a win-win. It's something that I like to do, and it's something that's also particularly like very valuable for my career and you know whatever I'm working on at the time. So you mentioned you guys uh, created an app and then got interviewed by Y Combinator. Uh, what was the app, and, and why didn't you end up uh, joining Y Combinator? So um, we the app was <laughs> we won't like so my freshman year I was um, I decided that I wanted to just throw a bunch of stuff at the wall and like sort of see what stick what sticks. Um, and, uh, I didn't want to, uh, build anything that took more than a weekend to build. So just like iterate as quickly as possible on different things. Um, try, try lots of different things. And so one of the things that we built over a weekend, I was working with some friends is, uh, this, this app, it was like, it was, it was like a really stupid app, but like it got popular. It was called where my friends be. And it basically, uh, it's very simple. You log in with Facebook and it would map your, your friends on a map. Okay. Um, and that got covered by Mashable, and then it sort of went viral. And we were signing up like you know a couple hundred people every ten minutes for like you know a couple days or whatever. So um, it was a it was a really cool experience. You know, we we had like fifty thousand users after like a week or two. Mm -hmm. um, but it was like the app itself was a very much a, like a one time kind of thing. Like people didn't come back to it. Um, so we you know we didn't end up really like sticking with it, but we on sort of a whim we decided to apply to Y Combinator, and uh, we're very uh, surprised to uh, hear back from them inviting us to interview. So we went on an interview, which was uh, like a very intense experience, very interesting. 
especially because we were freshmen in college. Um, yeah. And uh, we didn't end up getting in mostly because we didn't really have anything that we, we were like working on. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, when they sent us the interview, the email to interview, they said, we, we like you, but not your idea. Like come up with a new idea in two weeks and pitch it to us. Yeah. And the, the idea we came up with that they didn't really think was like so great. Um, and we were obviously like very, very young. So they were sort of hesitant to like have us go through the program at that age with, with nothing that we were really working on. You know, try to have to come up with an idea during the process of being in Y Combinator. So, uh, yeah, so we didn't, we didn't get in. Um, well, it's but, still cool to kind of go yeah. through that interview process. That's why yeah. I, I was curious about. Yeah, it was great. It was great. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. So where do you think you'll be in the next 10 years and what are you going to be doing? <laughs> I, honestly, like, I have no idea. It's a huge um, open-ended question. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I mean, like, I, I'm, you know, ideally working on things that I'm interested in. Um, and those things have tended to center around uh, technology, business, and writing. So uh, we'll see where that takes me. So a combination uh, of that. Cool. Yeah. Um, but I, I honestly, like, I, if, I, I can't tell you, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm the same way. So what are the, what are the, some cool apps, tools and books that you're obsessed with right now? Some cool apps, tools and books. Um, let me think about that for a second. Um, well, I am currently, uh, reading this book called Explaining Social Behavior by this, uh, guy named John Elster. Which is basically about um, it's basically like a toolbox of uh, concepts from like social science. Um, so like he talks about like rational choice theory. He talks about like what like what constitutes an explanation in social science, um, and just lots lots and lots of other things. But I think I think reading about like social science is interesting because uh, you're studying like you're basically studying like, human behavior, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of uh, what you do when you're running a company and, and revolves around human behavior, and that that means like getting people to buy what you buy your stuff, getting people to work with you, um, you know, like all, you know all the things that you do when you're starting a company are centered around uh, like how like you know, working with humans, um, and and uh, and I think sort of looking at it from an academic perspective is really really interesting. Um, in terms of cool apps or tools, I'm trying to drawing a blank on anything new that I've been using recently, um, except for Outlook. So one thing that you'll one thing that you'll find when you uh, when you uh, sell your company to a, uh, sell your company to a, a larger company is they tend to use Outlook. So I I never really used Outlook previously, but now I spend like, you know, half half my day in Outlook, which is a very very interesting experience. Um, but yeah, I don't. I think that that's. Uh, I don't. Yeah, I don't have any uh, anything amazing to tell you on the in the app category, unfortunately. I don't know. Worries. It's cool. Figure we toss it out there, see what uh, what you were what you were up to. But anyway, that that pretty much wraps it up. So thanks so much for your time and, and insights, Dan. It was amazing having you on. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, guys. Well, that's about it for this episode of Hack to Start. You can find all the important links beneath the show. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Hack to Start and sign up for our newsletter to know about all the latest episodes, behind the scenes content, and more. Thanks for listening and see you next time.